You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in the City of Angels, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and hello, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. We've got some uh, breaking news. We've got a couple of items of breaking news here and uh, a big show beyond that. First, the breaking news out of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, A Cleveland municipal court judge has found probable cause that police officer Timothy Lehman should face murder and other charges in the slaying of 12-year-old Tamir Rice. You recall uh, Tamir Rice. He was the uh, the young African-American uh, boy who was out playing with a, uh, a, a pistol, a BB, a BB gun, out in the park. Someone called in and uh, cops showed up. And within two seconds of pulling into the park, without even getting out of the car, shot 12-year-old Tamir Rice dead. Judge Ronald B. Adrian uh, released the opinion Thursday afternoon that uh, one of the cops should face murder and these other charges. Just days after a group of local clergy and activists filed affidavits asking the court to find probable cause to arrest Lehman or Loman, maybe it's Loman here, and uh, Frank Garmback on aggravated murder, murder, involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, negligent homicide, and dereliction of duty. This is according to Cleveland.com. The judge did not find probable cause that either officer should be charged with aggravated murder. Adrian, Judge Adrian also determined that there was not probable cause to charge Garmback with murder. Adrian forwarded his opinion to city prosecutors and Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Timothy J. McGinty. The judge recommended charges of murder, involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, negligent homicide, and dereliction of duty for layman or Loman. He recommended charges of negligent homicide and dereliction of duty for Garmback. Activist Rochelle Smith, a member of the group that filed the affidavit, said Thursday she was pleased with the judge's recommendation. This isn't the end of the road, but it's a step and it's encouraging, she said. The prosecutor's office will now review the case, 
conduct additional investigations as it sees fit, present the facts to experts for feedback before delivering the evidence to a grand jury. That process could take weeks or months. But uh, the process seems to be, at least for the moment, moving in the right direction in Cleveland after that uh, horrible incident where, uh, thankfully, it was caught on videotape. And so many things that have uh, come to light lately, I I believe. There's accountability in some respects, as we saw in McKinney, Texas, that ridiculous pool party incident. Eric Casebolt, the officer officer out there, uh, has now resigned on his own. He had been put on administrative leave after being seen in that videotape roughing up young African-American pool party goers. And again, thanks to the video, thanks to the videotapes, thanks to the cell phone videos. So uh, good news uh, for the moment out of Cleveland, I think. That's breaking just as we go to air today. Also breaking from AP, the uh, Federal Workers Union says hackers got Social Security numbers and personal data on every federal employee. (laughs) and i bring this up i I bring these up from time to time because they come and i don't even get to all of them all of these incidents of you know high profile uh we we saw the irs being hacked we saw every federal agency being hacked just within the past week or two i bring them up as a reminder your almost daily reminder now uh when they talk about uh bringing you internet voting and how they have military-grade encryption. You needn't worry. Everything is fine. Yeah, well, the military gets hacked, too, by the way. So when it comes to Internet voting, that's a big no, absolutely not. Don't even let them think about it. Don't even let them talk about it. And I am preemptively telling you this because I know that they are working on it, and I know they're going to lie to you about it. I've seen it out here. I've seen it out here in California where it happens to be Democrats up in the uh, state house that are the science deniers. They hear from computer scientists telling them, no, we cannot safely use uh, the Internet to to hold elections. And then uh, they support it anyway. Why? Well, because out here in California, Democrats think the more people who can vote, the better it's going to be for them. That may be so. But it's certainly not going to be better for democracy. So that's your breaking daily news on uh, on yet another hack. Personal data on every single federal employee. Now, I just want to just really quick. Oh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. <laughs> so I, producer Desi Doyen, yes. I just wanted to really say really quick that wasn't there a hearing in the California State Assembly where they had national computer security experts? Yeah. And they insisted. And what was it that they said about about the uh, how soon Internet voting might be available and ne- might be possible? Never. They never. said never. They said with the current Internet, as we have it, no, it is not possible to do it safely and securely. Let they it, Every time you see these uh, computer security experts show up and testify to legislators about this, they say, ask us again in about 10 years. And then we'll look at it again. Until then, no, absolutely not safe. Absolutely not. And that's only if you listen to the experts. Yeah, but who listens to them? Who listens to the experts at, you know, places like uh, David Jefferson from Livermore Laboratories, which uh, a laboratory like that spends its time actually, uh, you know, keeping the world safe from nuclear proliferation. They also, from time to time, look into things like this and they warn, yeah, uh, no, no Internet voting. Don't do it. And then legislators go about ignoring them entirely. 
<sighs> Story of my life. Okay, uh, so there's that. Uh, coming up in a bit, we'll have uh, Jason Leopold of Vice News. He will be back with us again, friend of the show. He is fresh off of his testimony at the U.S. House on the Freedom of Information Act in the uh, U.S. House Oversight Committee. Good to see Jason. Uh, when you told me he was uh, testifying today in Congress, I thought, oh, no, what has our friend Jason done? How has he been arrested? <laughs> What's gone wrong now? Turns out uh, he uh, you know, has been for years filing these Freedom of Information Act requests. He has been stalled by this administration on thousands of them. He's been called a FOIA terrorist. And, uh, well, anyway, he was uh, testifying on that and the experience that he's had. So we're going to talk to him about that in a little bit. But first, as we warned you uh, yesterday during our interview with Congressman Brad Sherman, the fast-track legislation for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, looks like it now will, in fact, be coming up before the U.S. House on Friday. TPP, of, of course, is the uh, trade pact with nine Pacific Rim nations and Canada and Mexico that has been decried by progressive Democrats. Congressman Alan Grayson has been on this show talking about how terrible it is. Brad Sherman was talking about how terrible it was yesterday. As a matter of fact, uh, he called it, uh, what, what was it, quote, he, he called it that he called it a continuation of the worst trade policies in the history of mammalian life. Yes, that's accessible he, conversation there. <laughs> he minced no words. He this said, is true. He said, over the last 30 years, we've gone from being the number one creditor nation to the number one debtor nation, the number one surplus nation to the number one deficit nation in history because of our terrible trade policies, which the TPP, he says, will continue for years to come. And specifically, fast-track legislation means that Congress doesn't even get to look at the actual agreement, or at least doesn't get to actually amend the agreement before it's passed and accepted and becomes the rule of law. That's that's what's up right now for, uh, for a vote on Friday, most likely in the U.S. House. It's already passed the U.S. Senate. And that will allow not just the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but... Uh, any future trade agreements uh, that come up in the next 10 years with whoever happens to be the president to be approved along this uh, fast track uh, authority where it just comes in for an up or down vote. That's it. So Brad Sherman, he advised, I said, well, what what is it we should do? What can voters do about this this agreement? This actually and I, should, I need to point out this secret agreement. Nobody can see the final agreement. Even Congress members, they can see the latest draft, but they can only go into a secret room. They can't bring in their advisors, lawyers, attorneys, uh, economists. They have to go in alone, make of it what they can. Uh, this is no way to run a democracy. So I asked Brad Sherman, whether you like the bill or not, this is no way to run a democracy. I asked, asked Sherman, uh, what, if anything, can voters do? Call your congressman and, uh, you know, you have the congressman where you live, you have the congressman where you work, etc., uh, call and say no on fast track and no on uh, taking money away from Medicare to try to fast track the fast track. Call, call now, call the district office, call the Washington office. There isn't uh, a single member of Congress uh, that shouldn't get a few dozen phone calls. 
And what uh, that was Congressman Brad Sherman on this program yesterday, what he was talking about with the uh, cuts to Medicare. That is uh, something that is being built into this thing, he tells me, that uh, if this trade agreement ends up in uh, reducing wages in this country, there's a fund that will pay to make up for the lost wages, but that money that is used to pay for those lost wages is set to come out of Medicare. So if he's right about this bill, and again, it's secret, so we don't know, uh, it's it's outrageous, it's ridiculous, and uh, he advises people to call Congress at 202-224-3121 to say no to TPP. Now, at the same time today, I received an email, uh, an email blast that was sent out by Congressman Alan Grayson, who says it's time to burn up the phones on Capitol Hill. He writes, if you care about anything, anything at all, then please pick up the phone, call 202-224-3121, ask for your congressman, and register your disapproval. Say this, he says, quote, vote no on fast track. He adds that if you feel your talk needs to be pointed, here are some talking points. He notes that our trade debt stands now here in the U.S., our trade debt, that's uh, the difference between what we buy from overseas versus what we sell to overseas. He says the trade debt now stands at $11 trillion, more than $35,000 for every human being in America, including you. That's the difference between what we buy from overseas and what we sell to overseas. And remember, whatever we buy from overseas is money that goes overseas and that goes to labor, uh, goes to workers who work for pennies on the dollar versus those who uh, make, uh, well, who used to make a living wage here in the U.S. Alan Grayson says Fast Track would pave the way for new trade bills that would increase that trade debt. How are we ever going to, uh, to, to, uh, going to pay that money back, he wonders, Alan Grayson wonders. Another fast-track uh, point, talking point he offers, he says, fast-track applies to whatever the executive branch calls a trade agreement, even if it has nothing to do with trade. He says, fast-track unconstitutionally restricts Congress from holding hearings, conducting investigations, debating a bill, and offering amendments to it, basically... It stops them from doing its job, he says. In fact, it could restrict each House member to only 83 seconds of debate. He adds, no other bill gets this special treatment, not bills on taxes, Social Security, defense, transportation, health care, nothing. Fast Track applies to trade bills that the executive branch, and again, no matter who has who runs the executive branch, whether it's Barack Obama, whether it's Hillary Clinton, whether it's Scott Walker, Rick Perry, Chris Christie, Jeb Bush. It, uh, fast Track applies the trade bills that the executive branch hasn't even released to the public now or in the future. So it's up to you. If you like, uh, call your Congress member, 202-224-3121. That's the switchboard. They'll tell you who your Congress member is if you're not sure who it is. 202-224-3121. Congressman Grayson also says that if you have a Democratic congressman who already gets it on fast track, you can call one of these Democrats who is undecided. And he points to 
Congressman Jim Costa and Susan Davis and Sam Farr all out here in California. They're all undecided Democrats. Ed Perlmutter in Colorado, John Carney in Delaware, Seth Moulton in Massachusetts, and Joaquin Castro in Texas. Apparently they are undecided, and the fact that you've got congressmen like Alan Grayson and Brad Sherman asking people to call Congress specifically to talk to Democrats about this, that tells me that they feel that without some Democrats on board, Republicans will not be able to pass this in the U.S. House. So there you go. Make of that what you will. Uh, okay, uh, Heartland. Uh, Desi Doyen, we talk about the <laughs> Heartland. You just laugh when I mention the name. I do. <clears throat> Sorry. This is the Heartland Institute, of course, the uh, the, the, the fossil fuel-funded uh, wingnut operation who is out there pretending that climate change isn't happening. It's all a hoax. Uh, not only is global warming not happening, apparently the globe is getting cooler, according to these yeah, that's, 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 that's one of their latest uh, ways of twisting the science in order to make it look like it's cooling when, of course, obviously it isn't. The principal crusaders for free speech at the Heartland Institute today, according to uh, Dismog UK. That's a blog. Great blog. Environmental blog. blog yeah. Yes. Uh, the principal crusaders for free speech at Heartland today took the pragmatic step of banning credentialed journalists from its event, fearing negative publicity. We've talked about on this show that the, uh, this week, the uh, Heartland Institute is in the middle of their, what they call their International Climate Change Conference. <laughs> yes. In which, which they deny Well, I call it their change. International Conference to Deny Climate Change Science. So. Right. Well, and uh, where they had, uh, well, we'll get to their keynote speaker in a moment. In a moment, Jim Lakely, the communications director for the oil and tobacco-funded think tank, withdrew the media credentials made and handed to Desmog Blog UK's uh, reporter Brendan Montague. He's actually the editor of Desmog Blog. He asked hotel security to remove the reporter from the event at the Washington Court Hotel in Washington D.C. <laughs> uh, the uh, director of marketing for this group said that he, quote, refused to be drawn into a philosophical debate when he was asked whether a think tank claiming to champion personal liberty and press freedom should begin blacklisting members of the media. Now, the uh, keynote speaker at this event, uh, as we have discussed in the past, is Senator James Inhofe. Chairman, you may remember he brought a snowball into the U.S. Senate uh, during winter to prove that climate change isn't happening or something like that. Senator James Inhofe is now the chairman, the Republican chairman of the Senate Committee on the Environment, who perhaps most famously once or twice said this. The notion that man-made gases cause global warming is probably the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Yeah, so it's the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. He was the morning's keynote speaker as a handful of guests assembled in the hotel basement. But, however, uh, members of the press who were allowed to attend the event, unlike uh, this editor of the Smog Blog, uh, members, of the, uh, members of the press were penned into a separate room to watch the speech on a live stream, which I guess they could have done from home rather than bothering to show up. Uh, this uh, is what the uh, this fellow Brendan Brendan Montague had to say. The editor who was thrown out of the event. 
He said, Uncle Joe Bast, that's the guy who runs Heartland Institute. Uncle Joe Bast and his Heartland Institute claim that personal liberty and the free market are absolute principles. But here we see them resorting to bully tactics, hiding behind hotel security and press censorship at a res- as a result of the mildest of criticism. Apparently, they were upset because uh, the smog blog was critical of the way the Heartland Institute showed up at a Pope event, a papal event, a few weeks back uh, concerning concerning the environment. And uh, he says, he goes on to say, I thought this was the ICC, ICCC event, not the CCCP. Ooh, a little Russia, a little Russia reference. Soviet Russia reference there. He added, whatever happened to the market of ideas? Well, hilariously, also, the Heartland Institute loves to complain to right-wing media like Newsbusters, which is, you know, a a sort of a a nutter's website. So they complained to Newsbusters that they don't get enough media coverage. And here was somebody giving a media coverage. And they said no. And they threw them out. And I guess it just wasn't the kind of media coverage they want. Uh, That's what the right-wingers are doing. Uh, what's the uh, Obama administration doing and how are they keeping the press from doing their job? We're going to take a quick break and come back with Jason Leopold live off his congressional testimony about the Freedom of Information Act and the way the Obama administration and, oh, maybe other administrations before them are trying to keep information out of the hands of journalists, journalists who otherwise have the job to keep the public informed so we can have an informed electorate. But I have a feeling there are a lot of elected officials who may not want that either. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. Oh, boy, indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Back in 2010, back in Ohio, President Barack Obama was uh, was quite proud of the uh, achievements that his administration had so far made at that point in his presidency concerning transparency. A stark change from the uh, George W. Bush administration, or so he would have us all believe. Here's what uh, President Obama had to say back in 2010 in Ohio about transparency under his administration. I won't stop fighting to open up government. Now, this is hard to do because we don't control every branch. But I can tell you, we have put in place the toughest ethics laws and toughest transparency rules of any administration in history. In history. By the way, this is the first administration since the founding of the country where all of you can find out who visits the White House. (laughs) First time in history. And that's just one example of how we're trying to constantly open up the uh, the process. Well, they say they're trying to open up the progress process, but have they succeeded? You know, I.F. Stone, the great investigative journalist, said that uh, everything that you ever want to know is already on the public record. 
Of course, the problem is getting at that public record so that we can actually report on it. Guy who's been trying to get at that public record and actually succeeding in many, many cases and still failing in others is our friend investigative journalist, now raking the muck at Vice News, vice.com, Jason Leopold. He's the author of the L.A. Times bestseller News Junkie, a memoir. Uh, but, of course, his proudest achievement, no doubt, is being described as a FOIA terrorist for the string of incredible Freedom of Information Act requests he's been filling over the last several years, often with amazing results. We're going to talk about some of those results in a second, and we're going to talk to Jason in a second. But here, very quickly, is just one clip from the testimony that uh, that Jason Leopold gave last week in the uh, in the U.S. Con- boy, I heard that he was in the U.S. Congress, and I thought, oh boy, what has what has Jason done now? Uh, his uh, he he spoke to the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform about the Freedom of Information Act uh, as it's been carried out by the Obama administration. Here's one very short exchange. I routinely check all the government websites, FOIA reading rooms. I saw that. They're they're not regularly up. You live an exciting life, Mr. Leopold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, no, it's quite exciting. Uh, uh, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, Jason Leopold was kind of cracking folks up during that uh, during that hearing. He joins us now on the ba- on the broadcast. Jason, sir, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Brad, great to be back with you. Uh, hey, I really enjoyed your testimony before the uh, before the U.S. Congress, and I want to get into that in a bit. And uh, even as you were sitting next to uh, crazy uh, Cheryl Atkinson from CBS News, but uh, we'll get into all of that in a moment. I want to underscore uh, the importance of the work that you do and the importance of the Freedom of Information Act before we discuss how good or not good the Obama administration is doing in that regard. You had a report, uh, you have a report uh, posted yesterday at vice.com concerning Samir Khan. And uh, this is the guy, he's uh, an American, a U.S. citizen, uh, who was being tracked by the FBI for, uh, for some time. And according to the documents that you were able to shake out of the uh, uh, out of the FBI, you've got uh, the FBI talking about a, an end game plan for this guy. Let me know if this end game plan is okay, says one of the FBI officials who was uh, monitoring Samir Khan's movement. Uh, it is a constant shifting of priorities, and uh, you go on to describe that he was under surveillance twenty four seven for some time, and yet somehow. Samir Khan managed to slip out of the country, get to uh, uh, Yemen to, in some fashion, meet up with Anwar al-Awlaki, another U.S. citizen who had been a, um, uh, how do we describe him, a... uh, We could call him a propagandist, uh, although the uh, the U.S. uh, uh, intelligence agents will, uh, agencies will, will say he was far more than a propagandist. Well, he was a, a, certainly a spiritual leader, a Muslim spiritual leader, but uh, he was also believed to be the spiritual leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP. And right. he was the U.S. citizen, the first, as far as we know, who was actually targeted by President Obama with a drone strike and killed. And at the same time, Samir Khan was also killed in that same drone strike, though uh, you report that uh, U.S. officials say that was an accident, that he just happened to be there? Yeah, basically that he was uh, more or less collateral damage. I mean, this would be, 
not a signature strike, but you know, uh, obviously, you know, Alaki was the target, mm-hmm. and uh, whomever Alaki was with, whether the <clears throat> CIA who conducted this uh, this strike knew about uh, who he was with, was just you know, it, it didn't matter. He was, uh, anyone that was with Alaki would be deemed a terrorist in the in the uh, eyes of the uh, you know US intelligence and, and CIA. And you reference a signature strike uh, just for people who don't know these are, are, are drone strikes that are basically done on uh, non-specific targets but uh, they they see what appears to be what they believe is a gathering of terrorists and basically right kill anyone who's there. But in this case, you're saying they knew that Anwar Alaki was there, they specifically targeted him, and Samir Khan gets uh, killed in the bargain, another U.S. citizen. So uh, here's what I take from your article on this, uh, on this, Jason. They're talking about an endgame. We don't know what the endgame is because that part is redacted in the documents that you received via FOIA, yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I mean, These are heavily redacted documents. So you're still able to take out enough information to, you know, obviously, as you can see, I put a story together. So, so is an end game? Uh, is it possible that the end game here is, oh, let's let this guy slip out of the country? I mean, because otherwise, one of two things: either the uh, people who were supposed to be watching them failed to do their job and they failed to keep an eye on this guy and allowed him to slip out of the country, or they let him slip out of the country knowing that they were going to target and kill him in another country with a drone strike. That, that's what occurs to me when reading this article. It, is that a similar takeaway that you had when working on it? I mean, I will say this. I mean, you know, to answer your question, I, I really can't say. I don't feel comfortable sort mm-hmm. of you know, reaching any sort of real conclusion that, you know, that the FBI, which is not supposed to be engaged in any sort of uh, uh, act, you know, uh, activity that would involve you know, the lethal targeting mm-hmm. um, of a, certainly of a U.S. citizen or, or anyone else. But it's very clear to me after reading these documents, and by the way, this is the fifth installment uh, in my series on Samir Khan based on documents I obtained from the FBI under FOIA. And, and collectively, what I, uh, the conclusion I've reached is that he certainly was not collateral damage. I believe that that uh, the you know the documents to me suggest that uh, uh, that that when he was already in Yemen uh, and and the CIA was already you know involved here that uh, he was he, he was also an intended target um, and and where this gets to be a little bit sort of you know getting into the weeds is that what the legal memo that the U.S. or that the Obama administration obtained allowing. For the targeting, the lethal, you know, assassination of a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. it was specifically drafted for Alaki. It was not drafted for Alaki, Samir Khan, and, mm-hmm. and 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 others. So that was very, very specific. So, so and I think it may have been much harder for uh, for the administration to you know get two people on there because as the documents that I obtained make clear, Brad, is that. Or at least from what we can tell, yeah. Samir Khan was was simply just a a propagandist in his own right. I mean, he 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 blogs about uh, jihad, wanting to kill Americans, uh, but there's no evidence that 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 has surfaced that shows he was in, acting in any sort of operational capacity. 
that he had the means mm-hmm. uh, of which to carry out uh, a terrorist attack. And the documents really make clear that the FBI, what their main concern was, this guy's writing some bad material. Well, he's the uh, guy, uh, let's make clear, he's the guy who, who was publishing this English-language Al-Qaeda magazine uh, called Inspire that had the right. infamous article, How to Build a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom. And so at best, he was a First Amendment terrorist in that he was, uh, you know, writing about how to commit jihad. But you you couldn't necessarily say that this guy was an imminent threat. And in theory, uh, under the uh, legal guidelines that the Obama administration has claimed they uh, they have here, they targeted Alaki because he was an imminent threat, as they claim. But there is no claim that Samir Khan was an imminent threat to anybody, correct? No, not at all. In fact, right. uh, you know, before he left for Yemen, he, and again, it's in these documents, uh, you know, the FBI obtained an urgent uh, email from a uh, Republican senator in North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, that uh, uh, showed that, he, that you know, uh, Alaki had put together uh, um, the precursor to Inspire uh, while he was still in the U.S. called Jihad Recollection. And, and again, it contained... You know, articles that uh, certainly, you know, they, they would be inflammatory uh, and uh, would likely fall under the protections of the First Amendment uh, as, um, uh, as inflammatory as, you know, as it were, mm-hmm. or as they were. But there's absolutely nothing there that has at least surfaced that shows that there's, you know, there, there's anything beyond that. Well, but, as, uh, as yeah. I say, Jason, this, the, you know, one of the takeaways that we get, thanks to your diligent uh, Freedom of Information Act request, uh, you know, there there are obviously still more questions than answers at this point, but we can look at this and say, well, hey, if, if he was being watched 24-7 by the FBI, it seems like somebody failed their job when he was uh, allowed to get on presumably an airplane and uh, make his way to Yemen. Somebody failed there. Somebody needs to be held into account. On the other hand, if he was allowed to go, uh, knowing that he would be targeted in another country, that it might be easier to get at him in another country, well, somebody has to answer for that as well, it seems to me. And I don't want to answer all of those questions right now, Jason. I I just want to point out how your reporting brings up uh, some very important questions, and your reporting is possible only because of the Freedom of Information Act that allows you to get at these documents. And this is what you were testifying about uh, last week in the uh, U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Uh, yeah, and let me just also yeah. add, Brad, that yeah. uh, specifically with uh, Samir Khan, and this, is, this benefits other requesters as well. So, you know, McClatchy newspapers, after I filed a request, has benefited from this, and and several mm-hmm. others who have gained access to, to these documents, because here's, here's what happened. When I first filed a request uh, for these documents, it was in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of uh, Samir Khan's death. Uh-huh. And it took the FBI, first of all, the FBI denied my request. They would not give up any documents. They, they refused. They said it was uh, you know, part in an investigative file. Uh, and this is you know, why uh, it's very important when... Uh, anyone who files FOIAs receives a denial letter, not to throw it away and go about your business, but to file an appeal. And I filed an appeal with the FBI, and I, I explained in my appeal why this is in the public interest. And it took the FBI three years you know, to give up these records. They've, they've actually located more than 15,000 pages of records, and they're releasing those on, on an interim basis. So 
So this is actually you're right, and thank you for noting it. This is you know this is a success story to get this material. It's really important. He's a U.S. citizen targeted in a drone in a drone strike, or excuse me, killed in a drone strike. Yeah. And and what is you know what was going on behind the scenes? And now we have some you know some sunlight, some transparency. Uh, revolving around that. You wrote, uh, you testified uh, before the U.S. Congress, Jason Leopold, last week that uh, the statutory response time is 20 days. They're supposed to respond in some fashion in 20 days, either with the documents that are requested or with uh, an explanation about uh, why they can't uh, com- comply with that request or, uh, you know, t- telling you that they will need a- an extra, a-, a longer amount of time to respond. You say that. Uh, the statutory response, 20 days, that only 1% of the time uh, these these uh, requests are re- resp- responded to within 20 days? Oh, yeah, that's, that, that's it. In fact, uh, uh, most of the, uh, the documents and certainly the, the responses that trickle in within that time frame are from smaller agencies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Department of Defense, CIA, FBI, you know, notoriously late flow. No one really you know, abides by, you know, the 20-day statutory, uh, um, or, you know, the, the, the time frame in which there, you know, the statute, the law says that they have to uh, uh, respond. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's extremely frustrating because you're trying to get material in, and obviously in a, in a timely fashion. Uh, I'm a reporter. You know, I need to report the news, and many of the things that I request, you know, um, are linked directly to, you know, an incident, uh, a program, an operation. And uh, so it's, it's really impossible to, you know, to, to obtain the material within that time frame. And I've, and I've filed thousands mm-hmm. of, you know, a FOIA request, that, uh, many of which are still outstanding. And, and sometimes you need a response when the issue is still of note. Uh, in other words, not only when, it, when it's still in the... Uh, uh, in the public spectrum, as far as the media goes, but you know, before uh, legislation that might be passed that uh, could, in some way, be affected by this information, I've come across this myself, where I've made uh, uh, whether it's a FOIA request or a public records request with another agency, and they love to slow walk it until uh, you know months and months down the road, when giving it to you won't have the kind of impact on. Uh, on the public discussion, you you testified. We have a, a clip here from your uh, from your testimony. Uh, this was one agency. I'm not sure which agency this was that um, you had pressed them and pressed them. And uh, well, I think I think this speaks for itself. Obviously, they did not want to give up the documents, and they were willing to do anything they they could to keep from having to give them to you. Which, by the way, is a violation of law. The Freedom of Information Act is a statute. It is a law. They must comply with it. Uh, here, here was one response, uh, one exchange you had with uh, one of the, uh, I think, I think actually Democratic uh, congressmen who were asking you questions on this. I asked for these reports. I filed a FOIA request. They refused to comply with my FOIA request. Uh, they said it was too broad. I narrowed it. They still said it was too broad. I sued them. Recently, they said that we'll give you some documents as long as you promise to never file a FOIA request again and don't have anyone else file a FOIA request. How, how is that behalf. legal? I don't know, but they put this in writing. And I'm really looking forward to you know, the day when I write this story up. 
I don't know why they will, they simply will not, uh, you know, uh, turn over these reports. They're not classified. By the way, that not only are they, um, uh, will they not give up the reports, they can't find the reports. So they're saying that they won't give me the reports, but at the same time, they're also saying, we don't know where they are. Oh, please write that story, Jason Leopold. <laughs> yeah, that is the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This is, you know, this is the Pentagon's in-house think tank. They spend tens of millions of dollars, Brad, contracting out reports that would, for example, um, uh, show or, 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 or evaluate Vladimir Putin's uh, body language. Um, that's one report that they did. I think it cost $300,000. And apparently, they, 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 much to my surprise, they have about 1,000 reports a year. Um, I'm not sure I actually completely believe that that's what they get per year, because mm-hmm. that would sort of account, you know, that, that would be two to two and a half, three reports per day, every day, you know, uh, that, that they're receiving. And are, but, these, are those the reports that you were hoping to get, Vladimir Putin's body language and, and, and the way this was assessed? Yeah, I, I mean, basically what I did was originally I filed a request for an index, you know, saying give me an index of the reports that you have, then I can choose what the reports are. They would not do that. They, they, the Pentagon literally flat out refused, denied my request, said it was too broad. Um, you know, I, I narrowed it. Uh, I, and as I said in my testimony, I, you know, I, I filed uh, an even narrower request. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just would not work with me, and I don't know why. Uh, but um, but certainly, I would you know a, a report like that. I you know I would take. It got to the point where. Um, you know, the, the, uh, so I did sue them on, uh, for violating the Freedom of Information Act, and, and uh, you know, I'm trying to get these reports. And uh, they are essentially saying that um, I cannot, uh, they'll give me about 50 reports of their choosing, by the way. And, you know, some of these reports are also threat assessments mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, that, that these outside, you know, organizations, firms, mm-hmm. you know, put together. They would give me reports of their choosing, would not even tell me, you know, what they are, uh, and then said I would, ne- would not be a, I would have to agree that essentially I would never sue to get any other reports, um, which the only way you can sue, Brad, is by filing a request first and then going to a lawsuit. So what they're essentially saying is we won't entertain any other FOIA requests that you ever file, and no one else can file any on your behalf. And yeah. that that so, seems to me to be complete. That that sort of strong arming seems to be completely in violation of certainly the spirit of the law, but also just out and out in violation of the law. They can't tell you that we will give these to you under certain circumstances as long as you never request any other documents again. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy. Of course, you know uh, I said that there's no way I would you know make such an agreement. Uh, at all, I would never. I would never do that. One and, and 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 the, you know, at, at this point, you know, this is still. In fact, there's a hearing this week in the case, and considering the amount of attention it, uh, it received last week, it'll be very interesting to see how the government sort of, uh, you know, uh, presents itself or presents uh, its side uh, uh-huh. in um, in, in uh, uh, court this week. But this is a great example of how some agencies uh, will just simply, you know, refuse to comply with the law and with FOIA. I mean, I also noted that, you know, the FBI has a policy, um, or it appears to have a policy, where they will not give up records that, you know, they say are 
uh, contained in an investigative file, even though the law says that they have to, you know, look at each and every document to mm-hmm. determine, you know, whether uh, it, it, it needs to be exempt. Jason, so but, it, 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 it's just widespread violations that, uh, Brad, you know, left, left and right. And it seems to me, uh, as happy as I was to see this, uh, to see you testify about this and, and the other folks that you were with, um, it, one of the, I think it was a Newsweek reporter who was also testifying along with you, I think she said never she's never seen so many agencies become veritable black boxes. Uh, there was a joke she told that, oh, if you want to know what you're going to be writing about in three years, file a FOIA request today. I was happy to see this uh, come to light and, and light be shed on this and the problems with FOIA. However, that said, it seemed to me that what uh, was going on here was uh, Republicans in this committee trying to embarrass uh, Barack Obama now and the Obama administration. And while I have no problem whatsoever embarrassing the Obama administration, it seems to me that these were many of the same Republicans who didn't give a damn about transparency and oversight during the Bush administration and that they were very opportunistically trying to say, uh, yeah, well, we don't need to talk about what went on with the Bush administration. Uh, it's worse under Obama, right? Right? It's worse under Obama. That He's politicizing this. He's doing this for political purposes. That was what I heard a lot of these guys saying. What, what was your sense on this? How politicized is the Obama administration in keeping people like you from getting these records? And how politicized was this hearing itself? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, you know, it's certainly a good question. I made it very clear when I agreed to testify, which is, you know, as you know, Brad, it's unusual. I'm a reporter. Hearing before Congress to talk mm-hmm. about my work is not, is not something that I would do normally and journalists would do every day. I made it very clear to them, however, that I wasn't going to get into a partisan match over, you know, which administration was worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, that this administration is worse, and I made it clear in my testimony that the difference between the Bush administration and the Obama administration is that Barack Obama signed an executive order promising a new era of transparency and open government, and Eric Holder issued new guidelines for agencies to ensure that they comply you know, with FOIA. During the Bush years, I knew I wasn't getting anything because you know, John Ashcroft made it clear that uh, you know, they weren't going to be transparent. So that's, that's the main difference. Certainly, you know, given that this is a um, a, a committee uh, that is uh, you know is chaired by a Republican, uh, I think that there is there was there was certainly partisanship there. But here's the thing, Brad. Yeah. This, is, this is the Freedom of Information Act. This is a, this should be bipartisan. I, I mean, it's very difficult to to, mm-hmm. to understand. You know, or, or to, to, to see anyone to say, I'm against transparency, I'm against sunshine. I, 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 certainly they wanted to get their shots in. I get it. You know, I was, it, that was very clear to me mm-hmm. that that's what they wanted to do, and I think one of my fellow panelists sort of, you know, wanted to make that clear as well. At the end of the day, um, uh, the statistics are out there. Uh, this administration has been uh, terrible. Uh, there's no enforcement of the certainly the executive order or attorney excuse me former attorney general Eric Holder's guidelines. Uh, there is uh, numerous times the White House will will uh, proclaim how transparent they are. So um, I understand why uh, the 
you know, lawmakers would would actually, you know, um, perhaps make it look uh, uh, like, you know, Obama is or, or, or using this in, in a partisan way. I, I get it. I, well, I'm it's there, there's it. but but let me just say yeah. that that, you know, this this whole thing about who's worse and who's worse. I mean, you know, we can we can go about that, you know, endless times. I mean, you know, right. back and forth with that. I mean, the fact is, is that. Okay, you said who's worse. I don't really know at the end of the day by, you know, what that would accomplish, um, other than you know the fact is is that you know some people think Obama's worse and some people think he's not. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains is that there's a massive backlog of FOIA requests, and these agencies simply don't follow the law. No, they they don't. And you're right. The uh, the hypocrisy in one sense uh, uh, does make things worse under Obama, uh, but. Uh, you're right. They're all uh, crappy. And I let me add that Congress, who was sure was angry uh, about all of this, it should be noted that the Freedom of Information Act does not repl- uh, apply to Congress. They kept themselves exempt. So all of these uh, FOIA requests are made to executive agencies. Congress gets off scot-free. You just kind of... I actually noted... Yeah. yeah, I actually noted that in my testimony. And I said... Should Congress want to subject itself to FOIA, I fully support that. Yeah, uh-huh. and I don't and, think uh, that they do. Yeah. Jason, i got to get out. I hate to say it because uh, it's always great talking to you. Uh, Jason, you as well. Jason Leopold of Vice News, friend of the show. Always great to have you on, Jason. Hope to talk to you again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, brother. Okay, we're running late, but time for one more quick story after this break. But this one story, oh, it's a doozy. You're not going to want to miss it. Brad Friedman. On your broadcast, stay tuned. So sad. I hope you've got Kleenex standing by for this. Very sad story. Welcome back. Brad Cast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Very, very sad here. Uh, Politico reports that at first one was the loneliest number for Republican presidential candidate Rick Santorum. When just one, count them one, just one Iowan showed up at a 2 p.m. campaign stop. <laughs> Yes, very sad. At a restaurant in the unincorporated community of Hamlin, population 300. According to a report from the Des Moines Register this week, Peggy Toft, an insurance agent who chairs the county's Republican Party, she was the only one who turned out. But even she would not endorse Santorum outright. She was the only one who showed up. Oh, that's so sad. And she wouldn't even endorse him. The Audubon, Audubon County Republican chair, she's the chair of the county Republican Party, said that she is, quote, leaning towards supporting Santorum, but has not yet made a decision about who she would support in the Iowa caucuses in 2016. The presidential candidate spoke for about 10 minutes, one-on-one with Toft, outlining what differentiates him from the rest of the Republican field, she said. And that was nice. He didn't leave. He stayed. He talked to her for 10 minutes. Uh, Eventually, 
Eventually, there were four Iowans gathered at Santorum's table. Oh, well, that makes a huge difference. Not counting photographers and campaign aides. Uh, where the 2016 hopeful lunched on a breaded tenderloin with a side of onion rings. Sounds delicious. This is what's going on in Iowa right now. There are so many... Well, either there are so many Republican candidates that uh, they can't even get a crowd of more than one, or nobody likes poor Rick Santorum. Can that be? Is that possible? He did win the Iowa caucus back in 2012, and a lot of people may not remember that because at the time the Republican Party reported that Mitt Romney won the Iowa caucus, but in fact... It was Rick Santorum who won. That wasn't announced until weeks weeks later. And the only reason we know that Rick Santorum actually won the Iowa caucuses is because the Republican Party used hand-marked, hand-counted paper ballots. And after counting those ballots publicly in front of everyone at the caucus sites, they sent in the results to the Republican Party, who then reported it to the media but they misreported it to the media. So, for example, in one location where they reported that Mitt Romney got uh, 22 votes, he actually only got two votes. And this we know because of the hand-marked, publicly-counted paper ballots. And people were able to step forward and say, no, 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 he didn't receive 22, he received only two. Uh, we had one of the uh, caucus goers on at the time back in 2012 on this show talking about exactly that, talking about how they were able to correct the numbers and make sure eventually that the winner was, in fact, Rick Santorum. Of course, that was 2012. He was very popular then. Uh, he only won, I think, by about 30. Yeah, about 34 votes in that uh, 2012 caucus once all the votes were actually counted and reported accurately. The lunch stopover in Hamlin for Rick Santorum came during uh, the Pennsylvania senator's latest swing through the crucial early primary state where he narrowly prevailed over Mitt Romney by just 34 votes back in 2012. Oh, so sad. Uh, he drew a slightly larger crowd, however. So see, there's a good point here. Uh, it ends on an up note. Rick Santorum drew a slightly larger crowd in nearby Panora, Iowa, when 10 people showed up to ask him questions about his positions at a telecommunications company. There you go. That's your uh, 2016 GOP Republican caucus campaign underway in the great state of Iowa. My thanks today to Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course to my guest today, Jason Leopold of Vice News. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it at bradblog.com later on tonight. You can stop by Stitcher, tune in, iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. It makes it easier for other folks to find the Bradcast as well. You can also drop me email anytime if you have any complaints, suggestions, requests, recommendations, or kudos. You can hit me via the email at bradcast at bradblog.com. You can and should also find and follow us at the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Until we meet again, you can, of course, always find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.